Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 32 as we continue our summer study in the Psalms. I want to ask you this question as we turn to read this psalm. What is your strategy for handling things when you do something wrong? This is a psalm about that. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's word. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. With my eye upon you, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your word would be a light unto our path, a lamp to our feet. We pray that you would buy it, show us ourselves. Lead us again to the Savior. Change us for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I was the youngest of five kids in a neighborhood of older children. So on a number of occasions, I found myself (laughs) the low end of the totem pole going along with the crowd. Happy to do what everyone was doing One evening, we found ourselves in our yard, which at one time had been an apple orchard, pulling apples off the tree and chucking them down the street in the neighborhood, and and a car came along, a four-door white sedan, and somebody, and I don't know who, 
chucked an apple through the open passenger side window. It must have clattered around on the dashboard. And the brake lights went on and the car screeched to a halt. And 20 kids fled my neighborhood as fast as they could. To no avail, of course. They'd undoubtedly seen us all in the yard, but, but there were 20 bikes in the yard. Well, three or more hours later, long past the time we ought to have been home, we all kind of quietly snuck to the door to come home. And of course, the car had backed up, pulled in the driveway, had a discussion with my parents. And so our family was met with a, a stony silence, a, a three-day silent treatment. I don't know if in my parents' wisdom, they, they, they knew they better not say anything until they were in the right frame of mind to say something. But, oh, it was painful for there to be silence between us because things weren't right. It was instinctive on our part. Run away, flee, get away, hide. You and I do that. We do that, don't we? When we sin against someone, we, we avoid them. Uh, maybe children are doing this with their parents. Maybe spouses, though you haven't left the home You've distanced yourself from the other. It's a problem that we are all prone to. We do this with God as well. We run from him when we sin. Maybe you've had a few hard weeks. I don't know. Maybe you blew it last week and yelled at somebody. Or said something you shouldn't have said and wished you could take back. Whatever it was. I don't know. What did you do? What did you do in your relationship with God? Did you run from God? Or did you run to God? That's the question before us tonight. How do you handle things for yourself when you do wrong? The psalmist in this psalm tells us you can either run from God, that's his experience in verses 1 to 4, or you can run to God, that's his experience at verse 5. So I want you to think about those two things and then the lessons that flow out of that from verses 6 and following. And so in the first place, running from God. Look at the way he puts it. Why, why is he running from God, we might ask. Why and, and, and how is he running? What, what does that mean? And, and what's the effect of that? Those three questions. Not, notice what he says he, uh, here in, in verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4. He gives you this this description, a threefold description of his own moral evil. When he speaks of his transgressions, his sins, his iniquity, what's he talking about? Transgression there is a word you need to know. It's, it's a, a word associated with rebellion or disloyalty against authority. In other words, he says, I've looked at what I've done, and I know that I crossed a line I should never have crossed. And in doing so, I thumbed my nose at the, at the rule and at the rule giver. I rebelled. And, and I want to say to you that, that we haven't understood the gravity of even the most trivial thing that we've done. Unless we've also understood it in the light of who God is. I mean, we do things with one another that we just shrug off. And love covers a multitude of sins. And some things are easy to let go and forgive. And we say to ourselves, well, that's not a big deal. 
But you need to measure sin against the one whom it is committed. And though, yes, we sin against one another, all our sins ultimately are against God in whose image we are created. God who said, don't do that. And he is not small. He's infinitely large and perfect. And so to sin against him is a big deal because of how big he is. And so sin here is rebellion. But it's more than that. It's, he describes it as sin. <laughs> this is the, the very common word we're most familiar with. It's the word used to describe missing the mark or falling short of expectations. It's not just that you've crossed a line. It's that there's a measuring stick and you have not leaped as high as you ought to have leaped. Uh, you shot an air ball in, in, in basketball. You fell short here. That's what this is. And that there's, thirdly, there's iniquity, he says, in him. And this is, the NIV translated it's sin there, but the word is iniquity and it means corrupt, twisted, crooked, bent. It's, it's, it's that we are internally wrong. We're not right. And this is various ways to describe sin. You know, the English word for wrong goes back to wrong, to be wrung out of shape. That's what we are, wrung out of shape. And, and we could pile up here friends the new testament perspective if you think this is just an old testament psalmist speaking doom and gloom about himself or us well jesus said in that very encouraging word about praying he said uh you know ask and it shall be given to you because which of you if you if your son asked for bread well you'd give him a stone you know break his teeth on it well no you wouldn't do that jesus says but if you then Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? He's not evil. But, but just in passing, Jesus refers to us. And he says, we're, we're wrong. And the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 3 when he said, No one seeks God. We have all turned away. Together we have become worthless. So, friends, I know we don't believe this about ourselves. I know we don't believe it's this bad. But we won't be in a position to enjoy forgiveness if we don't see that we need to be forgiven. If we don't feel our disease, we won't seek a remedy. I heard, and forgive me, I can't remember how, where I heard this recently in the last week. It may have been home. Um, somebody was diagnosed with cancer, but when they were diagnosed, they were given just weeks and they were gone in two days, but they had to that point, no recognizable symptoms. They didn't know that they were infested with this deadly disease. You may not know that about yourself, but the Bible says you need to see that, that you might apply to the remedy, that you might find healing from the great physician. So we need to believe this about ourselves but so that we might find forgiveness. But that's not typically what we do. We instead devise unsuccessful strategies for dealing with our sin. We don't go to him for relief. We run from God. We hide out from him. We do this in a variety of ways. Again, in, in verse 3, he says, when I kept silent. And then in verse 2, he talks about having his sins covered but or verse one 
sins covered, but um, he only later discovered that God would cover them. He'd been trying to cover them. And he talks about uh, somebody in whose spirit there is no deceit, no guile. They're open. But, but he, what he's saying is, but that was me. I covered my own sin. I kept silent about it. I had guile until later. Uh, so what are we talking about here? This is the way he was running from God. It may not have been visible to others, but he... On the one hand, simply ignored God and ignored his sin. He kept silent about it. He pretended it wasn't there or he tried to forget about it. He hoped God would forget about it. You ever do that? Go to sleep at night hoping that tomorrow you can just pretend that yesterday's in the past and it's all forgotten. But an all-seeing God sees it all. He tried to ignore it. He kept silent. Tried to hide it. This is, again, the deceit or guile here means to, to be full of uh, deceit. Uh, it's the person who says, when confronted with wrongdoing, who says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't, I didn't do what you said I did. When in their heart of hearts, they know that they did. They're just hoping they can get away with it. They're not honest about it. But there's another way we, we, we try to run from God in our sin. We try to smother it. We cover it in a whole variety of ways. He says, uh, um, he says he had been covering it. And so how blessed is the man who does not cover up his iniquity. But he had done that for a time. How do, how do we cover or smother up iniquity? One of the ways we do that is to occupy our minds with something else. For some of us, we get crazy busy working 60, 70 hours a week. For some of us, we distract ourselves with endless amounts of TV or emails or Facebook just to keep ourselves distracted from having to deal with our brokenness. Some of us surround ourselves with friends and fun so we aren't so alone so our conscience can't trouble us it's one of the ways we do it we occupy our minds or we rationalize it we smother our sin by excusing it we say to ourselves oh it was late or oh i was pressured into it or i was the youngest in the neighborhood and i just got led astray by others but they're culpable i'm not everybody did it dad Everybody. We compare ourselves to others, right? And we look and we say, we find somebody who's far worse. And so we comfort ourselves and say, I'm not that bad. It can't be that bad with me. At least I'm not like so-and-so. I'll repent when they repent. We say in a fight with somebody. You ask forgiveness first, then I'll ask for forgiveness. We do this in a whole variety of ways. We, we smother our sin, <laughs> occupying our mind and time and rationalizing or comparing ourselves favorably. Or, or we just try to fix it ourselves. Instead of admitting our sin and saying, I blew it, and going back to God. No, no, we try to do something to heal our conscience on our own without going back to God. When I have sinned against Melina and been very aware of it. 
I have also become aware that I will find myself at the kitchen sink doing the dishes. It's the oddest thing. And it took me a while to discover it. But there are times my motive in doing the dishes is just to try to fix, I think, as if it would. And it doesn't. But try to make myself right. Don't you atone for your own sins in various ways, trying to do good to outweigh your bad, pitting your good against your bad and hoping the good is more than the bad. We attend church to do that. We go to Bible studies to do that. And we would never be so crass as to say we're hoping to buy off God. But that's what we're attempting to do, offering him something in exchange for our wrongdoing. Or we do it a different way. We engage in penance as suffering, physical suffering. You know, in the old movies, you see this sometimes, you know, monks in the Middle Ages who would beat themselves as a way of doing penance. We sometimes smile at that. We think that's weird, that's strange, I wouldn't do that. But, but how many people today work off their misdeeds with excessive exercise, a, a relentless effort to improve themselves, to wear out their body because their soul is troubled about themselves. Or we just suffer spiritually. We just think, well, if I could just feel bad long enough, maybe I can recover eventually. We kind of do spiritual penance. We cover our sins by smoothing over them, trying to fix them ourselves. These are all strategies, friends, ways that we run not to God, but from God. And where does that get us? How does that really help us? It doesn't. The the man is miserable. The psalmist is in despair. Notice how weary he is. Uh, Psalm 32. Got so demonstrative up here, I lost my place. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, he says, through my groaning all day long. He actually has a physical reaction to his sin. He finds that he's wasting away and withering. His vitality is dried up, he says. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know what that's like. He's absolutely miserable because it doesn't work to hide from an all-seeing God. Guilty though you may be, Ashamed though you are, you'll never get rid of your guilt that way. Oh, friends, this is important for you. The famous Christian Augustine, this was his favorite psalm, and and on his deathbed he had it uh, engraved uh, or, or stitched or something. It was on the wall next to his bed to meditate on. He liked it, he said, because the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. It's so vital that you appreciate this. It's a prerequisite to true happiness because blessed, he says, how happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven. So we have to own up if we're going to experience that. So he's been running from God and now at verse 5, 
Uh, notice the language, how it changes at verse 5. Um, and I think even the NIV here puts, then I said, or then I acknowledged. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. A time has passed. I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened? You forgave. You forgave. He's run now to God in repentance. His conscience has bothered him. You know what your conscience is. It's your moral compass. It tells you you're doing right or doing wrong. Now, it, it can be malformed. You may, your conscience may say what you're doing is right and it's not right. It's not infallible. You and I aren't perfect in our conscience. But the conscience is the thing that keeps talking to us about our behaviors, actions, thoughts, attitudes. It's like spiritual nerve endings. You know, you put your hand on an oven, children, and you instant on a hot stove top, and you instantly react and pull it back because you have these nerve endings. Well, the conscience is like that spiritually and morally. And when our conscience is convicted by God the Holy Spirit and we're shown that we're wrong, what's God doing? He's not trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. He's trying to turn us back to him in repentance. He's not trying to make us feel bad so that he can wear us out so that we will get what we deserve. He's trying to impress upon us how serious is our sin and yet how willing he is to take us back to himself. And so God is so good, he refuses to let us be comfortable in our sin. And he troubles us. His hand was heavy upon me, the psalmist says. Now, let me ask you this question. You know, how much conviction by the Holy Spirit do you have to have in order to have true repentance? How deeply emotional must you get? How, how long do you have to labor under the weight of your sin before you can go back to the Father? Well, I would say this. The instant you realize you've sinned, you can go back. Turn back, pray to God when he may be found, the psalmist says. Right when you're convicted about it, turn to him. It is, listen, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I realize sometimes in my own parenting, I think the heavy hand on my children will turn them back. The harsh word, the strong rebuke, the constant correction, and I do this Oh, I need to repent of this. I think, I think it, that's what will turn them back. But, it, but, but God says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the hope of mercy that draws us to him. It's, it's God holding out before us the promise of forgiveness that inclines us to come home. There's a Spanish story told of a father and son who got estranged from one another over something. And the son fled from his father's house and the father chased after him, looking for him. And looked for months on end, but to no avail. And so in a last act of desperation, his father printed an advertisement in the newspaper writing, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up. We long 
to be reconciled. But we won't come home unless we believe we'll be received well. And God is trying to say to you, oh, blessed is the man who's forgiven, whose sin is paid for. I love you. Won't you return to me? You see how he's calling us in mercy. What do you discover when you come home to him? Notice the language here. Let me just highlight three things. What what does a repentant person discover? He discovers in the first place that he is forgiven. That his his, uh, transgressions have, have been carried away. The guilt of his sin has been lifted off like a great burden upon the shoulders and chucked aside and you're free Uh, i was years ago he doesn't remember this but my son daniel was was asking this question why when you go up do you eventually go down he was looking at a, a globe why when you go up do you eventually go down but but when you go east You just keep going east. North-south is geographical. East-west is directional. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I challenge you to head east and just keep going east. That's how far God removes our transgressions from us. He lifts them off and he carries them away. Another way to put it is he buries them in the depths of the sea. But not only are they forgiven, the repentant person, it says they are covered. Notice that language, whose sin is covered here. This is a reference to atonement and to the day of atonement. The sins are covered when the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice is spilled and the blood is brought into the most holy place into the very presence of God himself and it is placed upon the mercy seat of God and there in the presence of God death has come judgment has been paid the blood of a substitute in death has been laid before God and this is the promise of the gospel that Jesus the true lamb of God wraps me in himself and absorbs for me what my sin deserves. And I am covered in him. I was years ago uh, doing a vacation, kids vacation Bible school north of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, with folks we didn't know, we went up for the week to help a friend at a church. And, and we brought in a special speaker, a fellow seminary student friend of mine who was going to give the talk every day. And, and one of the talks was this. He invited a, uh, one of the kids to volunteer. And he had that kid stand about five feet away. And then he asked for another volunteer. And he had that kid stand on this side with a ball. And he said, now when I tell you to, I want you to throw the ball at that kid as hard as you can. And everybody looked at him and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do that. We don't know these people. And he walked over to the young kid and he wrapped his arms around him and turned his back and covered and shielded him and said, throw that ball. This is what Jesus has done for you. He's taken all that your sin deserves and you are covered. How blessed you are, friends. But finally, there's this. Your sins, he says, are not counted against you. Again, the language here is helpful. This is what God does not do. He does not count your sin 
to your account. But he counts your sin to the account of Jesus. And so he dies your death. He credits it to Jesus. Oh, friends, this is so good. If we, we, uh, We're assured today from 1 John that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, look, the first part of that we get. God is faithful, he says, to forgive. We understand that. He promised he would forgive, and God does what he says he promised. But what does it mean that he is also just to forgive? We, we rather want to read there, merciful. God is faithful and merciful, is what we say to ourselves. But, but 1 John says, no, 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 he's just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because he has already punished his own son. And as a just judge, he will not also punish us for what has been punished upon the Son in our place for all who look to Jesus. And so he is faithful to continue again and again to forgive you. He's just to do it and faithful. The question I want to ask us then, pastorally, is this. If this is all the case, why am I more ashamed to repent than I am to sin? Do you ever find that to be the case in yourself? You're slower to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, than you were to do the thing you need to be forgiven for. Why is that when... God is more ready to forgive me than I am to ask for it. Why? Why? It's because I don't see my Father in heaven rightly. I don't see what he did to his own son because he loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, you've got to see this. And some of you may be saying, you don't know what my life is like. If you know what my life was really like, you wouldn't tell me I could be forgiven like this. I haven't prayed in six months, some of you are saying. I'm scared of being rejected by God. I've done horrible things. There's a a song by Pink Floyd. And in it, an unbeliever talking to his girlfriend wife says if I show you my dark side will you still hold me tonight and if I open my heart to you and show you my weak side what would you do would you send me packing or would you take me home if I'm real with you God we say would you send me packing or would you take me home and the psalmist says he takes you home I've confessed my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's so good. And then there are these lessons to be learned to close out the psalm from 6 through 11, just briefly. But notice how the psalm concludes with David exhorting us in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to the Lord. And then God, I believe, speaking at verse 8 to us, I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. Let's just draw some final words here, lessons 
about running to God. In the first place, friends, notice from these verses that forgiveness is not the end, but a means to the end. Forgiveness aims at a reconciled relationship, in other words. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a great rush of waters they shall not reach you. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In other words, he knows that he doesn't just get forgiveness from God. Forgiveness gets him God. And that the aim of being forgiven is to be brought close and in relationship and to know the Lord as his strong deliverer and his shield and his great reward, his friend in times of trouble, all these things. Forgiveness... The aim of it is a reconciled relationship. Every Christian, he says, should do this. Pray to the Lord that you may find the Lord to be your help. Have you experienced, friends, how how painful it is when that doesn't occur? That where there is no forgiveness, there is no true relationship. There's no honesty, there's no warmth, there's no affection. Some of you have perhaps experienced that with the death of a loved one. When there wasn't reconciliation, there wasn't mutual forgiveness given. And and now that time has passed in this world for there to be the enjoyment of that reconciled relationship. That's a hard thing. The Lord is saying to us here, the aim of forgiveness is that you would come home to me and I would be your God, a God and Father to you and I'd like to be that to you. Oh, if I could just convince Christians, if I could just convince you of this. It's sometimes easier to convince hard-hearted, unrepentant non-Christians that they're sinners in need of forgiveness than it is to convince tender-hearted, sin-sensitive, guilt-suffering Christians that they are forgiven and the Father welcomes them. And that's what this table is for. The bread and the wine, the Father says, come and receive me. You're welcome at my table. I reassure you that I love you, that I am yours, and you are mine. You need to be reassured that way. That's the first lesson. The aim of forgiveness is reconciliation. Second lesson is this. Forgiveness doesn't lead to the, I'll sin because I know I'll be forgiven attitude. You, you'll, hear, you'll hear people say, look, if, if you are so free about the gospel that you tell people that they are pardoned 100% by the work of Jesus and not by their own works, then you know those people, they'll, they'll do some terrible things. They'll, they'll make their freedom in Christ a license to sin. But notice the psalmist doesn't think that way. That's not the point here when, when God comes back at us at verse 8 and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. It's got to be controlled by a bit or a bridle. That's a painful way to be controlled. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be hard-hearted, he says. Be soft, be tender, be malleable, be changeable. Let forgiveness bring you to me and let me work in your life. That's the language here. That's the idea here. Why else, though, would he counsel us to that if it was possible to be stubborn? You wouldn't say, don't be that way, 
if it was impossible for a true Christian to be that way. But because it's possible for you to be forgiven and stiff-necked, he says, now listen, I love you. I pardon you. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be. Because many, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And listen, notice what he's contrasted there. He has not contrasted the wicked and the perfect. That is not anywhere in his mind. He's just confessed his transgressions to the Lord. Don't get it in your head that the wicked are people who do evil things and the righteous are people who do good things. In the Bible, the wicked is the one who will not trust the Lord. And the righteous is the one who comes to the Lord and trusts the Lord. The righteous in the Bible are not perfect. The righteous look to the Lord for forgiveness. And steadfast love surrounds them and so happy are they. They rejoice. They shout. They're thankful. Does your heart leap with thankfulness? Oh, friends. Be glad. And as you come to this table, come with joy and thankfulness for the Savior who died to give you this mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you bless your word to us. Pray that you draw our hearts to you. We ask that you'd forgive us all our transgressions. In Jesus' name, amen.